0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to Episode 217 of the Lean Blog Podcast. It's March 2nd, 2015. Our guest today is Professor Alan Robinson. He's an award-winning author, educator, researcher, and consultant. He's co-authored six books, including Um, three that I've read. Um, The first being Modern Approaches to Manufacturing Improvement, The Shingo System, which was followed by uh, the books Ideas Are Free, and his latest, The Idea-Driven Organization, those last two being co-authored by Dean Schroeder. His specialties include continuous improvement, creativity, ideas and innovation, and Lean Production, being one of the earliest professors to visit uh, Japan to study the Toyota production system in the late 80s, and uh, Alan will talk about that. So in this episode, we cover a lot, including the history of suggestion programs and a surprising detail about their history, why 80% of an organization's improvement comes from frontline staff ideas, and why high-performing idea systems are rare. We'll also talk about some of the pitfalls of traditional cost-benefit analysis, the role of leaders and humility, and a company, Scania, that intentionally overstaffs to provide time for Kaizen, which leads to 12 to 15% annual productivity improvement. And we're also going to talk about, and I think there's some funny detail here, the real story behind American Airlines famously removing an olive from their salads. So we have a lot to cover if you'd like to see links to Alan's uh, websites and books and uh, some of the things that we mention in the episode, go to leanblog.org/slash/217. Thanks for listening. Alan, thanks for being a guest and joining us here on the podcast today.
1: You're very welcome.
0: So, can you start off by introducing yourself and uh, your academic background and, and what you do for the listeners?
1: Sure. Um, I don't know how far back to go. I grew up in Scotland and uh, went to university at um, Cambridge University, and I, I did. Uh, I majored in applied math. I got a bachelor's and master's there. And then I came over to this country and uh did my PhD again in applied math at uh, Johns Hopkins and uh came into the uh Eisenberg Business School in the mid-1980s and I guess I would have done a traditional been a traditional, you know, business school <laughs> applied math person. There was there's a lot of need for applied math in business. Um, but in the late '80s, uh, maybe it was '87, '88. Um, I became very. It was the time when uh, you know Japanese. Well, when U.S. manufacturers and managers had lost, kind of lost their confidence uh, vis-à-vis Japanese on the uh, Japanese onslaught. And I was, I got interested in uh, why why that was. And luckily, I had family in Japan. My father was a professor at Tokyo University and my brother uh lived and worked for uh lived there for 10 years and worked for Nippon Telephone and Telegraph as a middle manager. So I had connections over there and I was one of I don't know maybe 6 to 8 Americans who spent a considerable amount of time in Japan in the last in the last there's only like two of us left now. <laughs> um but uh but I visited a lot of companies. Um I studied, you know, what they were doing that was different. That was the time when I met Shingo. I wrote my first book, Shigeo Shingo. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's 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 about it. That sort of completely that was an inflection point in my career and got me very interested in uh, high performance, continuous improvement. I said I went I went just ruthlessly dropped my background and said, What makes organizations so stunningly high performing? And one of the things uh Shingo and, and others uh, I had a, a number of Japanese mentors, and they pointed me towards. Uh, they said the one thing we really do is bottom-up kaizen. We are just real. You know, look at what's happening here. We're getting so many ideas from our frontline people, and it's a it's a system. It's not just you know, um, it's not just hanging up a suggestion box. It's, it's, it's <laughs> you've got to train people. You've got to train managers. You have got to hold them accountable. There's a lot to this, and and. Uh, so i became interested in that and that's been a uh a, a thread of my you know consulting work and research work and writing you know since then
0: yeah so uh, you you answered the question i was going to ask next you know how did you get from applied math uh in, in this this you know kind of happenstance way of being able to focus on um learning from from japanese companies and now as these practices have spread around the world it's uh mm-hmm. you know 25 Almost thirty years later, not something we can label anymore. It's just "quote unquote" Japanese management, right?
1: Yes, and there was a lot of sloppy thinking about it back then. Actually, I I remember getting all kinds of lectures from both Japanese and Americans. I was sort of bridging the two cultures, and and you know, the Japanese would say to me, "Americans are all this and all that." I'd say, well, there's <laughs> like two hundred million of us, and went, all that. <laughs> And then Americans would say Japanese all wear white gloves and do detail work much better. And they're much more devoted to their company. And I had met plenty of burned out, <laughs> you know, Japanese uh, people who hated their companies. And so it just didn't quite, wasn't quite that simple, you know. But uh,
0: Yeah. And it is it, I mean, it seems fair to say today even, and I've only been able to go to Japan recently in, in 2012 and 2014. And one thing that, that seemed fairly clear in those visits was that um, you, you can't generalize about Japanese business culture, and one thing that you know people really pointed out is the tendency or the cultural pressure to not speak up and point out problems, uh-huh. which you know as is, is, is um, you write about in the books. You know, pointing out a problem is often the very first step in kaizen or improvement. So I'm curious, some of your thoughts about general Japanese business culture versus what Toyota and others have, I think, worked really hard to create.
1: Yes it's funny you should bring this up because uh, I just had a long discussion with my MBA class yesterday about this and uh, you know I think people uh, outside of Japan don't realize just how different you know Toyota was it this was not like General Motors decided to do this or Bank of America or a mainstream company this was a you know a sassy startup the japanese government tried to close them down a bunch of times uh, oh, really? uh, by by depriving them of <laughs> of uh you know raw materials or markets uh during the it, that was mostly in the 50s but um you know this this is an upstart company so you might want to think of uh I don't know one of these internet file sharing companies that got <laughs> shut down and you know it was doing something.
0: they were the Napster of yeah their time. They're way they're out Napster. of the box
1: <laughs> and so yes you're you're right i mean uh i i I can remember being taken by one of my other Japanese mentors to a a bar after work and he said. Uh, let's just have a drink, and we can talk. And and uh, he said, "By the way, you really would be interested in this." He and he said, "I'm going to translate for you the conversations." This was at eight eight o'clock at night, going around, at, going on at the other tables, uh, because this will give you a good insight into Japanese, you know, mm. business mentality. Because
0: because everyone does go out and drink. Everyone does go out. The rush hour is sort right? of
1: <laughs> nine fifteen to ten, and uh, and he and so he he cupped a hand over his ear, and he said. You must do better at work. You are not working hard enough. And they and it was a it was an older manager with a you know younger female employee, and they were smiling and laughing, but it was deadly serious, you know, hard hitting. If I had given one of my people an employment, you know, an evaluation review like that, they'd probably be calling yeah. their union rep, you know. But it was being done in this form of of. Uh, of uh, you know, we drink and we have food, and the company pays for it. But that's where our real communication uh, <laughs> occurs, and so it's it it is it's it's fascinating to me. And and somebody has to write the history of this of of how how this company sort of bucked uh, a lot of the you know its country's culture, and uh, you know it'd be like finding a communist collective in the United States being the most successful company, you know, (laughs) and it was situated in, you know, some, some solid, you know, Colorado or someplace. (laughs) So anyway, they, they, they did it and they showed the world how to do a lot of things better.
0: Now, some of the history that you've explored in in both ideas are free and the idea driven organization. uh, I, I learned a lot from this, some of the history around the origins of suggestion box systems and why, those have been generally, I think, dysfunctional compared to idea systems or Kaizen or however you want to label it. Could you talk to the listeners a little bit about some of, what were the things that were surprising or interesting to you about the history of suggestion boxes?
1: Well, I guess there's a couple of interesting things. First of all, that it doesn't go back very far. And so, I'm a sort of I, I love history as I read I read a lot of history you know when I'm on airplanes or at the beach I like reading history books and uh and I, it's just always been a joy of mine and I, at the moment the furthest back there's been some hand waving but there's the furthest, uh, and rumors, but the furthest back you know, documented system where you can actually go look at the ideas and read all about it, and it's in, our, it's in archives, is William Denny Shipbuilders of you know, River Clyde in Scotland. And that was sort of in the late 19th century. But my theory is that any large organization, uh, say, of several thousand people that was organized and functioning relatively efficiently, had to have some approach to uh, listening to what was going on at at Gemba, so to speak, or they wouldn't be able to just keep it together. So I'm looking right now on on my desk after this call, I'm I'm reading the archives of the Springfield Armory, which was the first big factory, you know, with thousands of people. It was in a war situation. Uh, Here here in the U.S. Here in the U.S., US, absolutely. Oh, I didn't say that, yes. Um, And... uh, you know, George Washington commissioned it, and they had to produce hundreds of thousands of muskets in time and ammunition to hold back the British. And uh, there was some considerable urgency about it, and it was extremely well run and extremely well archived. So I'm sort of digging there. And another That's another great. place that uh, I believe they had a suggestion system, and I have seen some smoke, I just haven't gotten to the fire yet, is the Venetian arsenal in the uh, 14th century – right. I've
0: I've I've heard rumblings about that. Um, I think Jim Womack wrote something about the Venetian Arsenal and had a chance to visit.
1: Right. Well.
0: It, or is it called the yeah whatever it's called. Yeah. No. It, it was. I mean, it, uh, yeah.
1: it, there's right. a lot that's been written about it. The small piece of it that I'm trying to get at is: did they have some form of suggestion system or idea system? So it's long been known that they were doing. Uh, you know. You know. You can read. Uh, you can go to Barnes and Noble and find a book. That will tell you about uh, the factory and the way it was designed and how it was just in time. It was the world's first pole system, you know, and that, that's 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 all known. But, but what I would like to see is a uh, you know sign that they had some uh, some form of color. They had at one point they had seven thousand shipbuilders, and they were building ships for the entire Mediterranean. You know, people would order. You know, the Sultan of Turkey would order – well, that's probably a bad example because they were at war with Turkey. But, you know, the King of France would order, you know, 100 galleys and the Venetians would make them. And uh, they were just incredibly advanced. And so – and and then you think of all the big military operations. I mean some some of the military uh, – you know, some militaries have paid a lot of attention to bottom-up ideas and it's had an enormous impact on outcomes Uh and so I'm I'm sure that you know it's not, probably not going to happen in my lifetime. But uh, and and you know people like like me who come from the Kaizen and continuous improvement background don't have the archival skills to go into Macedonia <laughs> and look up what Alexander the Great was doing. So it's going to you know it's going to wait a long time. But that's one thing. That it it's right now it's it's sort of all supposedly started at the end of the 19th century, which I don't believe.
0: Well, it seems like a lot of the thinking or in good improvement thinking, you hear examples from um, Benjamin Franklin and others, but the formal, the, the, the structure of you have an idea, you write it down on paper and jam it into a box. Right. Some of that formality or bureaucracy is, is- Maybe more recent. Actually,
1: you—that's you that's a great idea. Benjamin Franklin—he was the first Postmaster General. He was running the post office, and today the post office has a pretty good idea system. Um, and I bet you he listened to the postmasters. And after a while, once he had a lot of post offices going, he had to make something formal because he couldn't, you know, take it in orally, so to speak. So there's that piece, and then then the other piece of the suggestion box history is it, it really tracks very closely. Um, and it, this is sort of what I'm I'm writing and thinking about uh, right now for a couple of articles. It really tracks very closely, um, I would say, mankind's battle with command and control. Um, you know, the the there's been a lot of... Norman Bodek's late, latest book starts out with command and control is dead. <laughs> well, yeah. it's not dead yet. You no. know, I think most people in the world work in top-down command and control environments and right. we all kind of know that uh, that 's better than anarchy, but uh, now there are much better models uh, to to manage that get much better results and uh, the suggestion i mean if we want to talk just about suggestion box type programs, most of those are online now uh, but uh, those are a uh, the, the reason why the world is still looking at, you know, a lot of uh, most companies still use a suggestion box approach is because it fits very well with command and control. It doesn't threaten the hierarchy at all. It, it never brings in too much feedback and too many ideas. So it's kind of, if I'm, a, if I'm a command and control leader, you know, it kind of fits with yes, there will be some stuff coming up, but not too much. It's not that yeah. important. <laughs>
0: Well, you, I, I'll, I'll send you a link to the article. Um, I just saw today an article about the Philadelphia VA that put in a new suggestion box system. And the article said they had two suggestions yeah. in the first month. The first said, could you buy us some polo shirts? Mm-hmm. The second suggestion was saying that the suggestion box was a waste of time because you don't listen to us anyway.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and the most common suggestion in a suggestion box is, is usually fire the CEO. but. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, and the other little detail was that they, they 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 decided that because the box was hung right outside of the regional office director's office, that that was intimidating, and that they would relocate the box. Mm. So, they we'll see. I guess they'll see how that works,
1: right? <laughs> I already know how it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I'm trying to be kind. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm I'm curious here, um, you know, there's something I know you've written about. Some of the dysfunctions with um, rewards, with suggestion box approaches, you know, especially the idea. And like when I worked at GM 20 years ago, you know, I was part of a system like this. You know, you submit an idea yeah. that saves money and we'll share a percentage of that with you. And on the surface, that seems... So reasonable, and it sounds like good economics. If you want ideas, you need to give people incentives. But I think your your research has, has shown uh-huh. that's quite quite not not quite true, right?
1: Yeah, um, It's it actually. I didn't come up with that stuff. Um, I just kind of was a voice for a lot of other. Um, I first encountered that in Japan uh, with the uh, Japan Human Relations Association (JHRA) used to used to. Um, take data on, I think it was, they had like 700 members, and it was all the big companies plus some middle-sized companies that I'd never heard of, but a lot of them, and they took a lot of data, like how many ideas did you get, what was the measurable impact, you know, this and that, and one of them was how much money did you pay out in rewards, how much Mm -hmm. did you pay out in rewards per idea, Um, what's the percentage rewards that you use, and um the person who collected that data for years just said it's so interesting there's an inverse relationship the more money these companies are offering the fewer ideas they get And you could just see it in the data you just plot a graph of 600 data points and it's pretty much a it's not a straight declining line like the you know if the bottom axis is um you know the uh percentage you offer as a reward or say the amount of reward you pay per idea and the and the and the y axis is impact of ideas or number of ideas you get it doesn't really matter it's not a straight line drop it's a one over it's a reciprocal drop one over x very very fast um, and there's lot there's just lots of reasons why and as I started to uh you know delve into it in, in myself with the companies I was tracking and, and dealt with um, we just ran into all kinds of uh, crazy stuff I mean you get into well first of all you know it, it takes and in, if an, if a reward, if you set up a reward system and you say it's a percentage of the cost savings or revenue from an idea, well, that immediately means you have to calculate the cost savings or revenue from every idea. And the data we got from several companies that tracked this, and I keep telling companies don't track it, but when you do, please tell us because <laughs> it's a waste of your time. But um, was that it took an average? It takes an average of four hours of a manager's or staffer's time to put an accurate number on how much an idea saved uh... so you know uh, Amer- that was a figure from american airlines for example across several million ideas because american airlines ran a ten percent reward scheme and uh... you know you think about um, that's fine if you're running a suge- well american airlines they had ninety people at one time Whose only job it was to calculate cost savings from individual ideas, which by which is a, an aside is a completely non value adding information for it's only needed for the rewards and it's right. not very accurate as well, but if you look at you know a a Toyota or a, a Autolive or a company like that these days that's getting you know millions of ideas from their people, you know you a whole other car company with bean counters in it behind you <laughs> to add up the individual revenue so you, so it's an enormous uh, it, it slows things down um, we, we uh, tremendously I mean you can actually track that the the bigger the rewards uh, you give, the longer it takes to process an idea and We came across several fortune five hundred companies with ideas um, that were st- uh, ten more than ten years old before that reason um, nobody had nobody wanted to put in that kind of time and I still think of the I, uh, one of the organizations I worked with was the Brookhaven National Lab. I can name it and uh, the They used to have a cost savings idea system and the, the COO told this funny story when they were kind of revamping it and setting it up in a different modern way. He said, you know, we, early on we got an idea that said we should use energy saving light bulbs throughout the 57 buildings that these 5,000 people come to work in every day and we owed them 10% by the union contract. so. Um, myself and two others, we had to go around and count all the light bulbs. Because you can't just read it off the meter, you know, there's other things yeah. that impact your electric bill. And then the guy grieved it <laughs> because he disagreed. <laughs> right. You know, you can only say so yeah. much of this is is fungible. Like you know people come in at nine and leave at five, therefore the lights are on you know so many hours a day, but then he would say no, but there's cleaning and they happen to leave the lights on all night anyway for security reasons and blah 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 so you end you end up with lots of disputes um, a lot of overhead um I guess another point I would make is that uh the best idea systems in the world don't use rewards because they realize people don't need them, so why put them in when people don't need them? And then uh, I had to put myself through the certified fraud examiner training course because I was seeing so much fraud. Uh, It's very easy to steal money and it happens in every uh, reward-based suggested Uh system whether they know it or not. And we put a few horror stories um, in Ideas Are Free but they were by far the least shocking that we found.
0: Yeah. Well, somebody's buddies with somebody and I'll approve your idea and we'll split. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of room for shenanigans.
1: Yeah. Or you, you, uh, because yeah. unless, and then American Airlines had to do this, unless you audit the ideas, it's usually a, a subject matter expert or the manager who says this will save a hundred thousand bolts per year. There's no independent, the, the reason why companies have to calculate rewards is there's no independent check of this. Uh, you can't just look up and it's not like you got double entry idea bookkeeping. So so they'll say, it actually saved $5,000, i will call it $50,000, let us split the reward. You know, that happens all the time. And there's no, right. no defense against it.
0: Well, and there's a famous example from American Airlines of, you know, they had the idea, let's remove the olive from the salad and we save X millions of dollars per year. I flew American Airlines recently and there was an olive <laughs> in the salad. So, you know, maybe they... They somehow are generating more revenue now because they put the olive in more supposedly happier well in an earlier <laughs> as customers. in an
1: earlier book, we wrote an entire chapter about American aliens and I spent two weeks inside there filming a documentary about their idea system, which was fascinating in the olive story um, there there's more to it than meets the eye because the the way salads were then uh charged it it wasn't that uh, what, what happened was. Uh, for three items sell, for a, for a, just lettuce, it was a certain price for a three up to three items it was another price for four to six items it was another price that American Airlines paid in catering and the olive was the fourth item so uh, a flight attendant uh, noticed that seventy eight percent of people were not eating the olive and so recommended they pull it and it since it was the fourth item it saved like eight hundred thousand dollars a year but then. Uh, The olive growers of America found out about it and uh, grieved and sued and all this kind of (laughs) stuff. And so America's official policy became you have a right to an olive in your salad, uh, but you have to ask the flight attendant to go get it from the drink cart. But we've trained our (laughs) flight attendants and they will do that. And. Um, I a couple of friends and I, when that first happened, we tested that, and the flight attendants hadn't heard of it. They go, What you want an olive from the bar? You know, forget it,
0: you know, it's a different olive, but it olive, is, right? yeah, it
1: got black yeah. and green, and yeah, so it's just mm-hmm. a whole fascinating uh uh story. And someone got a lot of money for that, but I don't think they were yeah. able to cost in the fight with the American Olive Growers of America Association that was boycotting America, encouraging the restaurant <laughs> industry too, and all this. Stuff. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs>
0: So I I, I mean I, I agree with you and I, I've seen firsthand how powerful you know intrinsic motivation is especially where, where I'm working in healthcare people want to make things better for their patients or for themselves and you know there, there's so many ideas that that come out of that motivation um, one one of the numbers that, that's striking in the idea driven organization is um, a figure of you know eighty percent. Of an organization's improvements coming from staff ideas, so I was wondering if, if you could talk about that and yeah. how, how you came to that number. And-
1: well, the statistic is 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 um, it's a you can say it different ways, but the fact mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. when you go into organizations that have very, you know high performing idea systems, and they're relatively rare, so it's not everybody. Most people will not see this effect, um, but if you go into a uh, and we have a whole list of them in the book ideas are free and we have others as well uh, and you just say okay when they happen to measure it which we don't want them to do because it's a waste of their time but sometimes the leadership will say you know why are we putting all this money into listening to the little people it's not worth it you know we've got better things to do it's not a big I I once had a suggestion box and it was a waste of time so people have to take data to show that these frontline ideas, you know, what they're worth. And when you have an effective idea system and you do that, the 80-20 number as you saw keeps popping up. It's 81-19, 78, you know, 22, uh 85-15 in the case of a chemical company. Um and so the the, the statement is if if you are uh, that uh, provided if you've put an idea system in place, that's what you will see if you make if you do the right things, which is not reinventing the wheel you know to make it happen um but most organizations won't see that because they don't have a system, so then we frame it as you know eighty percent of your potential improvement lies at the bottom uh but you have to have an idea system to get it, you won't just see it magically
0: yeah and 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 so you talk about you know trying to collect the data to convince executives and that was something else I was going to ask you about there you know there's so many executives that have you know three decades of bad habits from coming up and succeeding within command and control environments have been rewarded for having the answers and instead of being rewarded for um, collecting and engaging and supporting ideas for their employees i mean it it, at some point i don't mean to sound too cynical but maybe this makes for an interesting question you know is there hope that you can actually convince leaders through data, that, that, that they should change their, their mindsets, or do we need to wait maybe for a different generation of leaders?
1: Um, you know, that's a great question, and it's like so many things, you know, your attitude towards women in the workplace, and you know, yes, there's a certain amount of let time pass, you know, and a younger generation comes up that wasn't brought on, up on that sort of diet, but the... the the, you're absolutely right. You know, T. S. Kuhn wrote about this in Structure Scientific Revolutions that your success in the old paradigm makes it much harder to shift to the new paradigm. So there's certainly that. But I I also have come to believe that command and control is just deeply rooted um, in in our in the, in the human condition. And in, uh, there's a sec, well, well, first on that, you know, if you think about all through time, you know, we've had slavery, we've had Kings, we've had, you know, um, serfdom, you know, and it just, and, and Pharaohs and, you know, this command and control has been the model. Uh, and Frederick Taylor, when he said, you know, here's how you need to step away mm-hmm. from the, the old, um, arts and crafts craftsman view of work, you know, you need to have a, his his model was a essentially a, a well thought out top down model. So it's just strongly ingrained for lots of uh, reasons. I'm I'm reading I'm rereading The Origin of Species right now by Charles Darwin, and it, I think there's something evolutionarily in there. <laughs> um, but it's very strongly held, and so you have to show people. Uh, and what I find is the the leaders that of the old kind, if you like. They will change, but uh, there's so many entry points into getting frontline ideas. What you what you need though is a is a burning platform. You need a sense of urgency. So when I I have a leader who says to me, you know, I just don't know. Uh, like in healthcare, uh, like you, I, I work a lot in healthcare. And these leaders of modern healthcare organizations or hospitals, you know, they, they are just – they don't really know what to do to, to, to survive. And then they start to be more open-minded and, and say, well, where's a, where's a resource that I don't have? And provided you have the data and you've got your arguments marshaled, you know, they'll, they'll move along. So there's a lot of, uh, of, um, uh, of ways to teach people. As we wrote in the book, uh, the best way is for them to go to Gemba with respect to ideas so often when they go to Gemba they kinda of walk around and ask questions but if you can show them a this is why a successful pilot idea system is a great way for a middle manager to kinda of get the leader interested show them that look at all the ideas that came out of this area and look at what they're doing for you and you, the problem is you can't really quantify it in the terms that the old can command and controllers have been used to because they deal mostly with as we talked we're starting to talk about uh, you know, financial results. They watch the numbers. That's how you keep control at a distance. Uh, but many of these ideas are process ideas. You know, giving me this wrench makes it really difficult. My wrist hurts and I can't work as fast. Yeah, they don't see and that. And they won't see that. But giving yeah. them a new wrench so they can work faster and smile at the customers actually has a big impact on your bottom line. So they're trying to manage something with tools that are too primitive uh, to pick up you know what they uh... what they need to see so I, it's a somebody's gonna write the book on this someday <laughs> but uh... Mm-hmm. The, the reason why uh... command and control is uh, is such a strong part of the way uh... And, and it's true around the world uh... even i work a lot in sweden and people think uh, who haven't been there that sweden's this lovely nice country where everybody's sweet to each other but they still have big bosses and all the Swedish workers say so very top down, no independence. It's a, it, There's something fundamentally human about it. That's the scary part in this business.
0: Yeah, how, Yeah, I mean, in in the positive, I mean, I think a lot of great Kaizen practices are very universal, but a lot of the problems and the starting points um, are often pretty, sometimes sadly, universal. And maybe the, the, the last thing I'd like to... Ask you about here that, that seems to be a pretty universal concern. When I've met with um, people from hospital systems around the world, they're all asking questions about you know how you know they they're wanting to I think on some level or at least those who are involved in lean and, and similar approaches um, they they want to engage their employees and when we talk about why is this not happening the first thing that always comes up is well you know lack of time not enough time and. There's, there's a story from Ideas Are Free about Scania, going back to... They're, they're, they're Swedish, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, about being kind of intentionally overstaffed right. to work on Kaizen. Can, can you talk about what Scania was doing? Because I think that's really, to healthcare, that would be a completely revolutionary I- idea that we would mm-hmm. not just staff to the absolute bare minimum cost-cutting type level.
1: Yeah, a lot of these companies get into that. Um, Scania was basically trained to do that by Toyota, um, mm-hmm. which you know does a lot of that overstaffing. They just make it look a little different. But the you know, it, this to me, this goes back to uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who wrote a lot about the uh, exploit, um, explore dichotomy or or uh, you know th- th- what, what you have you know we all have a set of things we currently do and they currently you know drive our economic engine and bring in money and can make us successful but you also have to explore and do new things and that's where companies tend to have difficulty except for the ones that uh, realize that putting some space in there for a well-structured exploration program which means you know improving and working on ideas and innovating and all the future oriented stuff you know makes sense and I think once you realize that that's that it that it really does make sense I, I meet a, a great many uh, leaders who, who as you say don't think it's worth the time <laughs> meaning that they don't see that their future is going to be better enough for the taking the time out of current production so to speak so Scania is just one of those and and they've uh, you know they do uh overstaff so that um, they try to, if I had to estimate, I would say they're probably doing ten percent exploration and ninety uh, percent exploitation. They're spending a significant amount of their resources making sure people have time to improve um, and uh, you know and innovate. And you know, I've, you see this in like a Toyota. I was just at Toyota Hanoi last year, and they have a full time. Implementation department for continuous improvement ideas, uh, which can be bottom up. They have they have like thirty ideas per person implemented system uh, in in Toyota Hanoi, Uh, but they also have process improvements and top down driven stuff. You kind of need it all to work together. And but out of a thousand two hundred people, they have ninety seven full time assigned to just implement these ideas it's a little bit different model than scania you know i would say i'm working on this machine at scania i would like to build a Pokeoke and i would go along to maintenance and get them to come and they at at, uh, toyota hanoi you kind of like pull a bell stop and tell the engineer what you want they go do it Mm. and it's done Mm. the next day however you free those resources uh to me, the, the smartest leaders, the ones who make the most money and run run the run the best workplaces, are the ones who realize, you know, however you make space for that, and and in the way that that looks is different in every organization because of the way it operates. Um, you know, you've got to make space for it, and then that Scania kind of thing is one manifestation of that.
0: So, so what I'm hearing you say is that you know, there might be different ways of accomplishing that goal, but if it's important, organizations and leaders find time they make time yep. for improvement.
1: Oh, they there's a a lot of uh very creative ways to make that uh time, you know, a lot of um when BIC was starting out, um they hired back a lot of retirees. Um and they hired uh in 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 their context, they needed more engineers and maintenance people. You know, in a bank, you'd need probably more IT people. Uh these these support functions to implement ideas. Um so BIC hired back uh, Kodak did the same thing years ago. They hired back a lot of uh, um, people who wanted to work a day or two a week and were happy to, and would be on their own schedule. But they could take some of the load of implementation off people who wanted to get production out the door, so to speak. Yeah. So it can look very different. And, yeah,
0: and and Kodak being, I think, one of those very earliest examples of a, a suggestion system as well. Yep. Yeah, yep.
1: Yeah. Some people—it's um, often cited as the first one in the U.S. and—and and that's not right. But I do see that in a lot of books that it's uh it is 1896. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, what happened was—I uh, oh, forget the name of the guy—but the CEO of Kodak, the founder of Kodak, met the Denny in London, and that's how he got it. It wasn't the first one in the U.S. was NCR with John Patterson. Um, mm-hmm. But Kodak was the second one, at least according to you know what everybody seems to understand about it. But Kodak didn't get it from NCR; they got it from Denny in London.
0: <laughs> ah, okay, yeah, uh, George Eastman. Yeah, that's right, George. Eastman. I'll, I'll take famous CEOs for two hundred now. <laughs> no. Well, um, well, uh, thank you so much for uh, for chatting today, and um, you know, thank you for all the the work you've done to you know, hopefully open people's eyes to um, you know the power of their employees' ideas and what an idea-driven organization um, can look like. Um, The book website, and I I do recommend the book very highly, of course. It's idea-driven.com. Alan, any other websites or or things you would suggest if people want to find what you're writing or or find you online or maybe you don't want to be found?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also have alanrobinson.com, and at some point I'm going to do some some things with that. But we're right now working on our next uh, – our next, uh, projects. Uh, and I just got my head down, uh, doing that. I do have people who run my website saying, could you write a blog entry? And I'm sort of right now more interested in working on this <laughs> new idea, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but those would be the two websites I'd point people to, I think.
0: Okay. Well, great. Well, Alan really appreciate it once again and, um, good luck with your next projects and everything you're doing.
1: Really appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. Enjoy talking with you.
0: Thanks for listening.